looking back on it, I just kind of think, why was there this expectation that I was going to physically measure up to healthy people? You know, it's like I feel like my propensity to push myself too much to try and keep up and um, also like degrading my health mm-hmm. because of that started so young just became like a habit that carried through until like my working life as an adult. Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. If you're new to the show, welcome. Nothing said on this show should be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. As will come up again and again on this show, unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. On this week's episode of the podcast, In Sickness and In Health goes international. I talked to Ariane, an artist, crafter, and holder of a master's degree in health geography from Vancouver, Canada. She has a number of long-term complex symptoms, but has yet to get a meaningful diagnosis. Arianne talks about the challenges she faces in the Canadian health system, trying to find answers to her long-term symptoms, and figuring out how to live life beyond just coping. I mean, as far as I know, I was pretty healthy until I was about seven. And then I got a stomach flu on a vacation, and that was kind of where things started going downhill. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it kind of held for like a decade, and then I got worse, and it held for a decade and got worse, and it's kind of gone in like plateaus downward, I guess. Um, and it wasn't until I was about 20 and at, like my third year away from home in university that I started getting sicker a lot more and a lot worse and having a lot of trouble making it to classes and stuff. And that's when I started like going to the doctor again and kind of saying like something's really not right here. <laughs> Things are getting worse. Um, and that's like one of the times where like my health tanked a bunch was around mm-hmm. 20 I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. I'm really enjoying hearing from you, so keep your feedback coming. A few episodes back, I joked about doing a show called Poopcast about funny poop stories, and I actually really want to do this as a bonus episode or something. You can contribute by recording and sending me your own hilarious stories, not just about poop, but about all kinds of unexpected bodily excretions. So vomit, blood, urine, snot, they all work. The grosser, the better. We all have a good story or two, or three, or more, and there's no sense in keeping them to yourselves. If you have a smartphone, you can use recording apps to record and email me your stories. I'll have a step-by-step guide on the InSicknessPod.com blog that I'll link to in the show notes about how to do this with the built-in Voice Memos app. If you'd like to contribute, you can send your recordings to InSicknessPod at gmail.com. You can also help us out by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. It helps other people find In Sickness and In Health. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at In Sickness Pod. Okay, so this is where I try to explain how the Canadian and American systems of healthcare delivery differ. 
As Ariane points out in the interview, it's not just that healthcare is funded by the government in Canada. It's a fundamentally different system in many different ways. Both are complicated and both have their advantages and shortcomings. I had this naive idea that I would be able to do this podcast without having to talk about these highly politicized and polarized issues, but it was pretty silly of me to think that I could do a show about healthcare without actually talking about the delivery systems that are failing the patients that I talk to. Forgive me if I don't get this all quite right, but you try explaining this stuff in simple terms. It's not easy. In the United States, healthcare facilities are largely owned and operated by private sector businesses, and pricing for the services, pharmaceuticals, and medical devices needed by patients are set by the private enterprises that administer or sell them. We spend more per capita and more on healthcare as percentage of gross domestic product than any other nation, according to the World Health Organization. And often, somehow, our outcomes are actually worse. I've spent a lot of time reading about and trying to understand the American system in all of its complexities and insufficiencies, but to be honest, I don't think anyone fully understands this stuff. But I will put it this way. Some people have coverage and some people don't, and having insurance coverage does not necessarily mean patients get the care that they need. People who aren't insured generally just don't seek medical attention for financial reasons, or they wind up in emergency departments of community hospitals. Among the people that are covered by health insurance, there's a pretty wide range of what that coverage actually costs, covers, and grants access to. Most plans include cost-sharing measures like deductibles and co-pays on top of steeply rising monthly premiums that are intended to discourage overutilization of healthcare resources but these costs can be incredibly burdensome for those with chronic health conditions. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, commonly called the Affordable Care Act and colloquially known as Obamacare, aimed to extend coverage to more people and make it more affordable, as well as require insurers to cover certain basics, things like preventative care and birth control. And it also aimed to stop discrimination against people based on pre-existing conditions. While the law has helped a lot of people, including myself, it hasn't quite worked out the way it was supposed to for a number of reasons that I'm not even going to get into here because they require their own separate show. We have many tiers of healthcare coverage and access in the U.S. These include those with no coverage, those with public coverage under Medicare, Medicaid, Children's Health Insurance Program, and the Veterans Administration, publicly subsidized coverage by private insurers through the exchanges established by the Affordable Care Act, unsubsidized private coverage for those who don't get coverage through an employer but make too much to qualify for a subsidy, and private coverage through employers. Different plans have different networks, and lower cost options often restrict access to very limited networks of doctors and hospitals requiring referrals for everything beyond primary care. For many doctors and clinics that treat rare disease and complex patients, they've stopped taking insurance altogether because they cannot get adequate reimbursement for the added time they need to spend with patients. In contrast, it had been my understanding that Canada had a two-tiered system of publicly funded healthcare and private healthcare that is accessible only to people who have the money to pay for it. But it turns out that's not really true, and Ariane helped clear some of that up for me. Canada is actually only a one-tiered system, mostly. Private care, the way that I had thought of it, is actually kind of illegal. The deal in Canada is that the entire system is public, 
you are, in theory, supposed to get everything you need publicly, thanks to the Canada Health Act of 1984. In the public system, general practitioners act as gatekeepers to additional care, requiring referrals for specialists and testing. Doctor shortages and long wait times plague the entire system. There are a handful of what they call private clinics to do things like elective colonoscopies for cancer screenings, or where you can get specialist consultations, or say, integrative medicine clinics, where you can get hour-long consults with MDs who are doing stuff outside of what's covered publicly. The part that's illegal is that you cannot charge patients out of pocket in Canada in a private clinic for something that is available by way of the public system. There are many specialist and general practitioner clinics that are privately owned, but then work and bill through the public system legally. It becomes illegal when patients have to pay the clinic out of pocket rather than the clinic being reimbursed by the public system. There's a lot of controversy around this, and just as in the UK, there's actually a movement among conservatives who want to change the system and privatize medicine similar to what we have here in the US, I guess. In Canada, they do have insurance systems, which differ from the actual healthcare delivery system. This is the part that's more two-tiered, but that's also an oversimplification. Public insurance covers almost all of the basics, surgery, doctor's visits, tests, etc., anything they consider mandatory. But there are holes in it. It doesn't really cover medications or things like physiotherapy or counseling or dental and vision. And that's where private insurance comes in. It fills some of the holes in what the public system doesn't cover. The problem is when you're poor or you don't have a job that provides private insurance, which many do. But then you can't afford some of the really important things, you know, like medication. There are extra safety nets for this, like in British Columbia, where Ariane lives. They have something called Fair Pharmacare. These programs vary by province, but generally, depending on income, the system steps in and pays for more of your medications that people with money don't get covered. But they pick and choose what's covered, and it ends up leaving some people up shit creek without their meds. In both countries, all of this is complicated by geography, with inadequate resources to meet the needs of high population density in urban areas and underserved populations in rural areas. Both systems don't do a very good job of meeting the needs of complex patients, and both face a fundamental problem with getting necessary care to the people who need it. So there you have it, a quick, oversimplified, totally inadequate primer on the difference between the systems in the United States and Canada. Now take a listen to my interview with Ariane to hear how the system has interfered with her getting the help that she needs. And yeah, I just struggled my way through university <laughs> for years. Um, you know, I'd just miss classes when I needed to. I'd leave in the middle of class all the time um, because my stomach was getting upset. And, you know, by by around then, people were starting to have a little bit more awareness around chronic illness. So at least, like, the doctors at the university clinic were a little bit more supportive. Mm-hmm. But, that, like, you know, I never went to disability services <laughs> to get something like, you Did know, it even occur to you to actually do that? I think I thought about it at one point, and I think I, I think I might have even asked someone about it, and they were like, "We're not sure we would accommodate something like this," because <laughs> basically, like one of the big problems I was having was making it through three-hour exams without yeah. leaving to go to the washroom or being able to eat during the exam too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Which are like not ridiculous accommodations to ask for. Oh. Those are pretty easy to to work I think, around. Like today, if I went to university for some reason again, you know, I don't think there would be any problem. Yeah. But I still wasn't great at advocating for myself back then. And I really still didn't feel like I deserved any accommodations. Mm-hmm. Like, because I didn't think of myself as disabled at all. Right. I was only just starting to, like, kind of see the seriousness of coping with life as a chronically ill person. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, and I was pretty sheltered because I went to university for eight years um, before I ever had a real job. <laughs> Yeah. Because I couldn't, I never went to, I never went to school full time. Um, I took like three to four classes per semester and I went to school year round to make up mm-hmm. for a lighter course load. I guess I never had a function like at regular person capacity during those years <laughs> because like I would I'm laughing like, so hard because I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like, you know, I would just book all my classes after like 11 a.m. so mm-hmm. that I didn't have to skip them all. Right. <laughs> you know, and, um, after finishing school, it took me a while to find a job. So I was off school for several months. And then when I started working, I took a job that was only four days a week, but nine to five. And it was so difficult. Yeah. It was that's, just like, it's a grueling schedule. But like, it was still like every day, I was just so exhausted, like yeah. picking up pre made food on the way home, like eating and crashing and repeat. And after a year and a half of that, I got so sick. I got, like, this horrible upper respiratory infection that Mm -hmm. I was on antibiotics for, like, eight months. Like, my lung capacity was decreased. But, like, I never really recovered from that. Yeah. And, like, that was, I think, like, the big kind of downward shift in my health. And, like, I've just been kind of going downhill since then. Mm Mm-hmm. I eventually, like, switched to a different job that was supposed to be just from home. But, of course, they got offices, like, one month in. Well, you know, I worked part-time. I worked from home a lot of the time. And it was still just, like, a constant struggle for me to even do, like, 30-hour weeks. And I eventually left because I was really burnt out and, like, not, you know, it was a great bunch of people that I worked with. Mm -hmm. Like, I actually really liked the work environment a lot um but yeah I just I was just turning into this kind of like angry unhappy sick person yeah and I thought oh like I know that person (laughs) I'll leave and I'll freelance and uh, you know it'll be a better fit for me but like when I stopped working I just crashed so hard and I've never gone back to where I was before that yeah and so I spent like the last three years basically really really trying to get better medical care Mm-hmm. and try and see if there's anything, like, to help me do better. And what? I've only been getting sicker and, like, not finding any help. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. What are some of the, the barriers that you've been facing to finding better okay. medical care? Well, so I'm in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, like, our system is a different system, like, not just because it's publicly funded. Mm-hmm. But Everything, it just works fundamentally differently. Yeah. So, like... I hear people a lot in the U.S. saying, like, if you don't like your doctor, just go find another one. Yeah. Like, don't stop until you find a doctor who you work well with. And you can't really do that here. Right. So, like, I only got a GP this uh, at the start of this year for the first time since I've lived here. So, like, 17 years. 
Um, I finally got into this community health clinic who only takes complex patients. So that was a huge barrier, just not even having a GP for years. And did you not have one because you couldn't get one or like what was the issue there? Yeah, partly. So there's a real shortage of them here. Yeah. And a lot of them just don't want to deal with patients like me. Like you go in and you have your seven minutes of allotted time and they say pick one thing to talk about right <laughs> and I was like so I was supposed to travel a half an hour each way for every seven minute topic that I want to discuss like mm-hmm. I have too many can you book me a longer appointment and they're like no <laughs> bye yeah <laughs> that was definitely an issue and then there's also shortages with uh, a lot of specialists and particularly gastroenterologists are one of the worst shortages here so um you know a lot of the specialists I've seen I've had to wait upwards of six months if not like a year to get an appointment Mm -hmm. and you can't switch doctors easily yeah so I saw a gastroenterologist probably seven or eight years ago and had a workup or like a partial workup back then um, to screen for IBD, and three years ago, I started getting really, really worsened symptoms, and I wanted to go get a second opinion, and it took me two years to find a doctor who would even take me for a second opinion, wow. and like by then, my symptoms had changed somewhat, and I'd been on this super restrictive diet that was kind of controlling things, and I went through all the hassles to see this doctor for a second opinion, and he was just like, had judged me from them before I had even walked in. Like, I never even got to tell him my symptoms. He really seemed, like, angry I was there for a second opinion. Oh, wow. And he he did put me through a bunch of tests, which um, I hesitated to go through with him even because of his attitude towards me. Yeah. But, like, everyone was telling me, like, you don't want to have to wait six more months to go back to your old doctor and get the test done. So just, like, do it. And I really regret it now because I think it's just screwed up, like... I'm going to have to go back to my old doctor and I'm hoping like he won't be angry and not want to treat me because I saw someone else. Yeah. Because I basically got these tests done. He said, I don't see anything like go follow up with your GP. Like essentially like don't come back. And like, I'm no better than I was before the tests. Like the test didn't solve anything. So yeah, it's really difficult. Like trying to get specialists who Mm. are good yeah, well, we have that problem in the U.S. too. Yeah, but it's like yeah. you get one chance. It's like yeah. the doctor you get, and then you're kind of yeah. stuck with them. You That's can't go see like a different specialist. Situation. Yeah. Like not being able to access. I mean, I remember going over and over again to this doctor who I was considering, like, trying to get as a GP years ago. Mm-hmm. I remember going back so many times saying, like, my throat is still bugging me. My throat is still bugging me after these res- respiratory infections had happened. Right. I was starting to have voice problems. I had this spot in my throat that was hurting all the time. And he would just say, like, oh, you know, I don't see anything. And I was like, yeah, but it's, like, down here. And he was like, you know, the third or fourth time I came in about it, he was finally like, well, the only way you're going to be able to know what's going on is if you go to an ENT. And I was like, okay, send me to an ENT. Oh, my goodness. Right. And I finally went there, and she stuck, like, a scope down my nose into my throat. And I had, like, a granuloma on my vocal cord. Mm -hmm. And, like, even though the granuloma was gone now, I have all the same vocal problems and throat problems and pain and stuff that I had back then. And I, you know, I don't know if it's because there's some nerve damage or something, but like 
did that delay of eight months or whatever it took me to get sent to the specialist right make me have a like a worse long-term yeah. extra health issue <laughs> yeah that's a that's a really good point yeah you know it's been like three years since my gi stuff got and like you know i i definitely think i have ibs because mm-hmm. yeah, i've had it for 30 years that's so pretty predictable but like i started having like I don't know how detailed and graphic you want me to get here. Oh, get as graphic as you want. (laughs) I started kind of out of the blue having, like, violently severe rectal pain. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, a lot of the other symptoms you get with colitis, like, basically, like, I was having a lot of diarrhea, mucus, like, some bleeding sometimes. And, um, you know, it's been three years I've been trying to get help for that. By the, by the time I had a colonoscopy a couple months ago, finally, I had been eating only chicken and rice pretty much for like two years. Yeah, wow. it, it suppresses the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And like, so I hadn't been having these crazy like flares where I have like ten, 10 seconds to get into the bathroom and I'm practically passing out from pain. Yeah. But it's, it's because I'm not eating vegetables, <laughs> like, right. and I can't eat vegetables, or else I'm, like, going to end up in the ER for the fourth time this year, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, it's yeah. Like, and if that is How something... am I supposed to get help with that? Like, do I have to make myself violently ill to the point where I'm non-functional and ending up in the ER so mm. that I can actually get someone to take it seriously and evaluate right. and figure out what's going on? Right, yeah. And, and something like that, which, like, might actually be inflammatory bowel disease, you know, right. that's an autoimmune condition. And the longer that, the like, the most successful outcomes generally with autoimmune conditions yeah. are ones where, you know, they catch it early and they're able to, you know, keep you in remission for as long as possible instead of, yeah. you know, allowing those lesions to progress. And, and um, that's the thing is, like, I started having other symptoms at the same time, like totally different symptoms. But at the same time as that started, I started yeah. having a lot of mucous membrane dryness. So, like, now I have, like, this sort of tentative possible diagnosis of Sjogren's syndrome, which is an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. But we don't know if it's that or it's, like, part of this, like, chronic fatigue syndrome, like, <laughs> which I think is, like, some kind of dysautonomia thing, though not necessarily POTS. Mm-hmm. But like I've been reading about a lot of that because my rheumatologist kind of said maybe chronic fatigue, and so I've been learning more about like the physiology behind that to try and make sense of what she was saying. Yeah. At first, I was like, oh gosh, not another like chronic <laughs> fatigue on me. But like, um, but yeah, I've been learning about like the physiology like of the newer research mm-hmm. for, around chronic fatigue, and I'm like, sure, maybe it is that like. My nervous system is totally wackadoodle and, you know, it's not regulating my mucus protection properly or whatever. But, like, a bunch of weird stuff started happening, more severe stuff, all at the same time three years ago. And I couldn't, I didn't even get a chance to explain that to this GI doctor that I saw. Yeah. It's just maddening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I've had other things come up that I'm, like, this is serious, too, because, like, I got diagnosed with osteoporosis last year. Oh, wow. Okay. What's that about? That's not normal when you're 35. <laughs> no, but, I mean, you know, if you're not, if all, if you're subsisting on chicken and rice, you know, yeah. you're not getting a lot of the nutrients that you need. But, yeah. like, that's not an IBS symptom, right? Right. It's not a chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. So, yeah. I think something else is going on here, and, like, my GP cares, but, like is so overwhelmed with me, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just, like, gives me referrals and, like, tries to, like, be supportive. But really, like, none of my doctors 
are trying to get to the root of what's going on and it's me pushing this boulder ahead and like not getting anywhere and like I'm getting at the point now where I'm just like okay I'm just gonna adapt to this totally lower quality of life Mm -hmm. and you know I'll try and keep working to find answers but like at some point I just have to figure out how to have a life like this yeah for sure I mean ideally you can do both at the same time but you don't always have spoons for that so you know if if quality of life is your priority you know I think it's a good thing to focus on for sure especially because like you know I my history is very very similar to yours and I have all of these really complex symptoms that overlap you know like I have diagnoses but it's still really hard to tease out what's what because so many of them have kind of overlapping symptoms Mm -hmm. and you know I I have access to pretty good doctors who who spend more time with me than most doctors would and who try a lot harder than a lot of doctors that I've seen in the past and we still like don't really know what to do and are kind of just like feeling around in the dark because the things that I wound up being diagnosed with are you know, there's not been enough research and no one really understands them. And I know way more about them than the doctors do, which is a little challenging. Um, Yeah. And and it's like, you know, at some point you just have to figure out like, okay, like how am I going to be a person in this situation? I mean, like the the episode you had a couple back, I think the number six, the other person who had EDS Mm -hmm. and dysautonomia. Yeah, that was episode six. You were talking a lot about like, coming to uh, I guess label yourself or not with the the word disability Mm -hmm. and I've been thinking about that so much lately because I basically feel like I don't see any situation where I'm going to get a lot better right like especially unless I spend you know thousands and thousands of dollars to try and go to the U.S. and get like more I, would, I wouldn't recommend it. I honestly. No, and you see people do that, and, like nothing comes yeah. out, right? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I went to these ridiculous lengths to finally get a diagnosis, but that doesn't, you know, when you get diagnosed with something that doesn't really have any treatments or cures, yeah, exactly. like no. And don't get me wrong, finding my diagnosis has been really monumental for me, both you know physically, but also especially emotionally and mentally. Just finally knowing that, like, I'm I wasn't making this up and that this is all real you know um that's helpful Uh, yeah and and I mean just also like accepting it for yourself you're talking about the internalized ableism Mm -hmm. and and at some point one of you said something about mobility devices and like oh my gosh I could go to a museum again yeah and you know I've been practically housebound for the last year and, like, even people I know who know that I'm unwell don't really get, like, what level that's at. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't go out. I don't do stuff anymore unless it's yeah. in my house or, like, walking halfway up the block. Right. Yeah. You know, I only go for doctor's appointments, and they're exhausting. And I, I like, rarely for... have people over the house because it's exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. I go out for doctor's appointments and Gatorade. Yeah, and exactly. that's it. <laughs> Yeah, like, I need to pick up another six-pack of electrolytes. Yeah, yeah. I just, I had a doctor's appointment today that, like, you know, round trip should be, like, 45 minutes, but I got lost on the way there, and then I got, there was, like, crazy traffic on the way back. And as if a doctor's appointment wasn't, like, exhausting enough, 
I just felt so wiped out when I got home, you know. Mm -hmm. I had to also sit in the waiting room, and then also was a gynecology appointment, so there's, you know, changing of clothes involved and a pelvic exam, which is pretty, you know, Yeah, those are also just, like, tiring. Like, you know, anything that kind of stimulates your nervous system, Mm -hmm. I find is just... Yeah. You know, I need a I need a day to recover from it. Right. And all of these things I haven't, you know, aren't even the interaction between me and the doctor. You yeah. Know? Which is supposed to be the most important part, but by the time I get to that part, a lot of times I'm just like, just do the thing. I need to go home and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I find a lot I mean, I've definitely I've been slowly finding some good specialists, so at least I feel like the appointments aren't a waste. Yeah. Which but is, like, you know, is I went really important. Horribly long, painful appointments at um, this pelvic pain clinic oh. a while back, and I had really like high hopes for it because I had seen one of the doctors like ten years ago, and I'd had a good experience, and um, it was just so bad on so many levels. I was there for like three hours. Oh. And it was like so long for me and it was such a painful exam and the doctor I was expecting to see wasn't the one who saw me and the one who I did see was like so manic, cutting me off all the time, like just really not keeping a person relaxed in a situation where you want to be relaxed. And then at the uh... end, they like offered me you know, to be, go through their, like, clinic thing that they do with people, mm-hmm. but then I told them, like, I can't come to the, to the clinic for an entire day for, like, my intake, which is the way they're structured, oh, wow. and they basically were telling me, like, well, then we can't give you care, and it was, like, the most, probably the most traumatic yeah. experience I've had, and it's the only time I've done this, but I, like, walked out in the hallway and just started sobbing, mm. And they had me talk to the doctor, like the lead doctor who I was actually supposed to be seeing then again. And, you know, I expected her to really be sympathetic. Yeah. And instead she, she wasn't. And she had a, she phoned me a couple of weeks later to follow up on like whether I was going to participate and stuff like that. And she's just like, so you were a bit anxious. And I was just like, <laughs> no. Like, yeah, because anxiety is, like, written in my file. Right. Do you not understand, like, the level of grief I was experiencing when you, you know, someone finally offered me some medical care and then said I was too sick to access it? Yeah. You know, I just, like, lost it. And I was like, no one is ever going to help me. Yeah. I had a moment like that. Um, was last year uh, in like April, I think. And I had, I was diagnosed with POTS, but not yet diagnosed with EDS or like most of the other stuff. Um, And I had just been diagnosed with POTS in January. So it was still a really fairly new diagnosis. Um, You know, I was still learning about it. And like, I knew enough about it at that point to say like, okay, there's something causing this and all of this other stuff we should figure out what it is, you know? And so the neurologist that I had been seeing, who is wonderful and who I continue to see to this day, um, had never heard of POTS before, but I heard that this other doctor had, and I thought, well, you know, what's the harm in going to see a doctor who has actually heard of what I have before, you know? Um, 
And so, like, the first she brought me into her office, and from the moment we sat down, it went south. And I, to be fair to the both of us, I think we were both having a really bad day, but... Just in trying to like communicate what I was experiencing and her trying to receive that communication, there was just like she was immediately kind of on guard and like on the offensive. I don't know. It was just a very Uh weird kind of vibe for the conversation. And so I was trying to explain what I was experiencing and she kept interrupting me and trying to change what I was saying. Like... Mm -hmm. You know, like, and not not translate it into medical terms, but just kind of telling me that some of what I was experiencing, you know, wasn't really possible and it must be this other thing. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Um, So there was a lot of that kind of back and forth. And I was exhausted. And I think I had been waiting for a really long time, too. And so I started to get kind of exasperated. And she... Basically, she was saying that, like, I can't start treating you until you go to the Mayo Clinic and get a full autonomic workup oh and, you know, whatever, which, you know, even even if the those possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of tests were to be 100% covered by insurance, which they would not be, um, the travel there and lodging there is also really expensive and not covered in any way. And yeah. also, at that point, I was so sick. I could not get on a plane and fly anywhere. Yeah, it's like unthinkable, be, isn't it? Yeah, I couldn't be in the car for more than half an hour. And she's telling me, you need to go to, to Minnesota. I live in New York. You need to go to Minnesota to have these people work you up. Yeah. And then maybe, and then maybe I'll start treating you. Um, and... So after all of these years of being told by doctors, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. I can't help you. Here was a doctor kind of saying to me, like, there's too much wrong with you. I can't help you. Like, that was what I was hearing from her. And that's not necessarily what she was saying. She was saying, you know, you're a very complex patient. I don't feel comfortable prescribing anything until we figure out exactly what's going on here. And I appreciate that. That's, That's actually nice but the way that she said it was not great yeah and it's hard I mean what if that's not an option for you right like yeah can you not access any care then exactly you know I mean I was lucky in that I could could just go back to see the one that I already had and liked um but it was that was really traumatic you know having because I in a matter of three months had gone from having quote nothing wrong with me to too much wrong with me. Right, right. Um, and you know, here's this woman who's supposed to know about this thing that I have that no one else knows about. You know, and she's telling me, I I can't, I cannot, and I will not help you. Um, and yeah, I, I lost it. Yeah, I I didn't even go out into the hallway. I lost it in her office and I started crying I wish hysterically. I had I wish I had done that in the doctor's oh, office. Oh so no. Was like, it was, was not it was not good. I was Well, I ended up sobbing in front of the doctor anyway, but it yeah. was like while I was like dealing with the administrative assistants because they were the ones who were like, "Oh, we can't book you because you can't come all day." Like and yeah, <laughs> they didn't really know what to do yeah. with me. They kept going back to talk to the doctor because they had initially said, "Oh, we'll we'll figure out how to make it work with you." And then suddenly was like, oh, no, we can't do that. Oh, yeah. And, like, to their credit, 
you know, weeks later when I got the phone call, they were like, okay, we think we're going to like, you know, bend the rules for you a bit. And, you know, if you cancel X number of times, then we'll let you go on to see our physiotherapist um, and counselor without doing the day long intro thing. And it was just like, it had become so patronizing by that point. I just postponed it like indefinitely. Yeah. <laughs> Cause basically like, you know, it was a couple services that I can get privately. Plus like their main workshop was like a day of stuff on mindfulness oh, and helpful. CBT. Which, and like to be fair, those things are actually very helpful. But they like, are, but like you know, I've also you're... been at that for years already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, this whole experience has been so bad for me. Like, yeah. if I need to go do pelvic physio, I'll just go pay my hundred bucks an hour somewhere. Like, right? You know, and that's for someone who's not been able to work in three years. Right. Yeah. But it's like it's it's worth that to me. And especially just to be like that. Yeah, and especially for something like a pelvic pain clinic. Like, I I have this fantasy that, like, all gynecological clinics should be, like, the women's center at my college where, they, like, there's, like, nice couches and everyone's really chill and there's, you know, just uh, bowls of condoms everywhere. And, you know, people can, like, come out and, like, hang out and just, you know, talk about issues that we're having. Um, and then, the, yeah. you know, there's, like, there's cool doctors. And, and then it's, like, the contrast. <laughs> yeah, I, I have not found any place that exists like that, but it would be oh, lovely if it did. wonderful place here. It's called the Women's Health Collective. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, an outreach branch of the Women's Hospital. And it's in the downtown east side, so it's, like, where there's a lot of people who have trouble accessing health care, who, mm -hmm. like, don't have money. So they have other services included in it. But, like, they, it's all nurse practitioners. Okay. There's not even any doctors there. And they're wonderful. It's, like, one of the be best health services yes. I've ever dealt with. But, like, yeah, I'm, like, oh, this is how it should always be. Like, really right. non-judgmental. Yeah, really puts you in yeah, no. because there's so much stigma around that stuff, and they're, like, women are, I mean, I don't know how it is in Canada, but here in the U.S., women are so uncomfortable about their vaginas and their uteruses and their periods and all of the stuff that comes with having all of that stuff. Oh, I um, live in, like, the hippiest, uh, <laughs> most progressive neighborhood in the city, so... I think it's, I have, I have a bit of a skewed perception. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely have a skewed perception too. One of my best friends growing up, her mom was our high school sex ed teacher. So like, I'm super comfortable with this stuff. And like, you know, it, it really bums me out that so many women aren't, and we yeah. aren't like, we don't get good information, I, be it from our parents or from our schools or any right. other, like, public health initiative. There's just not enough good information getting out there. Um, and so there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And there's just a, a lot of, like, not thinking about it at all, um, which isn't particularly helpful either. And so I, I would love to see more, like really inclusive and welcoming kind of women's health care out yeah. there and and Planned Parenthood like kind of does that right, but there's right. the resources are so taxed and like they're under constant attack from like all sorts of angles that like it doesn't doesn't quite do what I wish it could yeah 
Yeah, and I mean, it's funny because you occasionally see women's health clinics that are really functional and good like that. And I keep mm-hmm. wishing there was something like that for chronic illness. Yes. Also <laughs> and like, there, is, there is like a, there's a program that's opened up here. It's called like the Complex Chronic Illness Clinic. It's mainly for fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. I think chronic fatigue and Lyme disease. Interesting. But like the wonderful doctor who they had gotten to move here to head it like left because of controversy and problems and things oh. and like the wait list is I think three years long or something now yeah and they're really under-resourced and like yeah. I think it's a similar thing where you end up doing like CBT and mindfulness and pacing training and it's like for someone who's been at it for a while it's still kind of basic right yeah but like yeah I just you know there's so many women our age especially like it's actually kind of shocking who who in their late 20s to early 30s have just gotten like totally knocked out of normal life mm-hmm. from chronic illness or mental illness or both and they're not able to get good health care yeah oh, like they just have to stop working like you know if they don't have a partner to depend on they're really struggling financially mm-hmm. like I don't think things need to be as bad as they are. Like, I know that a lot of us, like, aren't diagnosable or maybe there's no treatments for us or whatever. But, like, I really think that a lot of us could be doing a lot better. Yeah, I think that supportive healthcare is something that could be really helpful for complex patients. You know, like, and this is something that I've been really struggling with the past couple weeks, especially of just, like, total burnout from having to deal with all this stuff constantly and advocate for myself so hard and like you know make sure that I'm getting the care that I need to get um but if I had you know something that or was an advocate right like have you yeah. heard of self-advocates that are cropping up here I've heard health? of them I don't know anyone who's actually like utilized one and I'm not sure I also, the other thing that I've been struggling with is that I now know too much. I know too much about my diseases. I know too much about the system. I know too much about how doctors are educated that, like, I kind of am in a pretty dark place right now where I feel like the health system at every single level is completely unequipped to deal with a patient like me. Yeah, I did. I did a consultation, just like an intro talk with a private health advocate which is like the first one I've ever heard of here Mm -hmm. and that's that's kind of how I was left feeling I was like she's really nice really empathetic but like I don't actually think she can do anything more for me than I'm doing for myself right and yet I do feel super like burnt out and super alone making all these decisions about like what to do and what to try and you know I've kind of like finally just taking a bit of a step back to like deal with some other aspects of my life right now right but, like, you know, even just taking a month off from, like, full-on healthcare mode, I already am realizing, like, I can't take time off from it because, like, issues one, two, three, four, and 6 are, like, all, you know, flaring up right now. And I need to get my specialist appointment referrals in because it's going to take six months to see them. Right. It's yeah, it's, you know, I, I don't know. It is, like, people say it's a full-time job and it's, it, like... yeah. It really is, and I wish there was somebody who was helping me manage all this. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, like, you kind of hope your GP 
could do that, but they just don't have the resources. Yeah, and I finally found a wonderful GP. She was awesome. She knew so much about EDS. And, like, you know, like, she would admit herself that she's by no means an expert, but, like, she knew, you know, 90% more than most uh, general practitioners in the U.S. probably. Um knew so much about EDS, knew about the secondary conditions. She had multiple patients just like me. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And it gets better. I actually see most of my doctors at a multi-specialty practice. So Uh, she happened. It's like a dream world. (laughs) Yeah. And then a month and a half later, she left the practice. No. (laughs) (laughs) Can you believe that? Why? Are you serious? No, maybe not a month and a half. It actually might have been maybe three or four months. But even in that time, I saw her more times and got like more out of those visits with her than I did in the three years with my previous GP, who like I only saw her for physicals and that was it, you know, And, and I finally felt like, okay, here's somebody that I can work with that can help me manage this stuff and can help me, you know, feel like if something goes wrong, we at least have a plan or I I at least have somebody to call, you know? Um, Now I'm back to feeling like, yeah, I can call one of the other internal medicine people in that practice, but like they don't know me and they might have my electronic health record, but they don't know who I am and they don't know, you know, how much I know and they don't, um, and they certainly don't know as mu- as much about EDS as she did, which is frustrating. So, uh, did you find like did your GP also help with things like the one thing the one great thing mine did was like ask me if I had applied for disability, which I hadn't and had all these feelings about. <laughs> but like when I started reading up about it, I was like, oh man, I really really need to do this. Like if not for my long term security, yeah. But, um, but you know, like, I'm starting to think about broaching the topic of, like, mobility aids. Mm-hmm. And, like, is that something that doctors brought up with you at all? Oh, no, by no means. And none of no. them, all of them have tried to avoid talking about disability with me. Um, it mm. was my financial advisor who actually told me I need to apply. Because uh. he was like, you're, you're out of options. You know, you, you've worked full time. And you like, and that didn't, that definitely didn't work. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've worked part time and that didn't work and you've been freelancing and that's not working. Like you, <laughs> you're out of options and you're about to be out of money. So, you know, it's, it's time and I haven't started. And that was probably a month and a half ago that he told me that. Um, I did try to talk about it with a few of my doctors and they were all kind of like, well, good luck with all that. You know, (laughs) they didn't want to have anything to do with it because I am still so young and, um, and I do this really stupid thing when I go see most of my doctors, which is that I pretend I'm doing a lot better than I am. I'm not sure why I do that. Oh, it's, it's such a tough call, too, because, like, some yeah. of them react better if you seem put together, and some are just, like, right. you know, why are you here? <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's, comb- like, it's a combination of things. You know, there's the internalized ableism where I want to pretend like I'm not as, like, broken as I am. Mm-hmm. Then there's the fact that I do know that they know they can't help me, basically. You know, there's things that they can do to help, but essentially they can't really help me. Um, and I know that they know that and I feel bad about it. (laughs) So I want to make them feel like they're helping me, which is not helpful for either of us. 
Um, so, you know, the, what they've been seeing isn't necessarily what my reality has been. Um, yeah. you know, and also I can do the song and dance of like, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the situation. So I crack a lot of jokes and I, I'm kind of like on during a lot yep. of my doctor's appointments. I feel you there. And that is the 10 minutes in my day that I'm on the rest of the time. Like I'm, I'm, I feel terrible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I have trouble with the same thing and I've been really like, because I mean, so I, I shockingly like, I think because I had such support for my GP, I was approved for disability mm. like immediately. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, I was like, what? Because it's, like, at least, I don't know what the process is like in Canada, but here in the U.S., it's really hard, and most people get to yeah, it two, three, four times. What I had heard here also, especially because it was for, um, like, long-term, uh-huh. I, I guess that's the equivalent in the U.S., um, yeah, so I was, like, just really shocked. And I was like, oh. It was also kind of, like, sad for me because I was like, oh, wow, even the government, like, <laughs> believes yeah. I'm really, really messed up. Yeah, there's there's, I'm, like, there's this definitely list, an emotional component to that. When you sure. fill out the forms and see it all at once, oh, like, yeah. li- you have to list all of the things that you cannot do. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's really That's part sad. of the reason I've been putting off the application, too, is that, like, I, I think one day I sat down and tried to do it, and I was like, fuck this, I'm not doing this today. Yeah, and it's you like, know? and I could, it took me weeks to fill out, too, because it's yeah. so much, and you have to write it by hand. <laughs> like, Ooh, I have such wow. bad arthritis, like, hand pain right now, which I've also had for the last few years, like, you That's know, hilarious, I could fill out, like, one page per day. <laughs> An inaccessible disability form. Yeah. Good job, Canada. But, like... <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's weird. I was so glad and like I'm I'm really glad it exists. But then it, it's, you know, this is an expensive city like I'm sure you know with living in New York, like Vancouver's super expensive and like it's just so little money. Like mm-hmm. I'm already so lucky that I'm in a pretty good situation financially. Like my partner has had good jobs and like, you know, it could be so much worse, but long term, I don't know how this is supposed to work. So I'm like right. already hatching like plan Z of like how am I going to get back to being able to work part time? Yeah, well, you have launched plan Z, have you not? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a business yet, technically. Yes. I mean, technically, it's a business, but yeah. like we have no income. Well, so, I mean, just look at Twitter. They've never yeah. been profitable. And so like with disability, like you have an allowable income you can make while on disability. Mm-hmm. And basically like once I hit that, then I'll be off of it. Um, and you have a certain number of years where you can be like quickly put back on it if it turns out that you're not actually able to work like when you try to work and it's like oh no this is actually not doable but like yeah so we've been trying to get this um like I don't know how much I should explain it but just like it's a website for people to do crafting basically Ariane is very modest about Textilia, the platform that she's built with her partner Bruno, which is an online database and community for all manner of sewing and fabric enthusiasts. The platform is a community for quilters, garment, accessory, and home decor sewists, and textile artists such as embroiderers, dyers, and people who print fabric. 
They can create a profile page to show who they are, what they do, and what they make. There's a discussion forum to talk about tools and techniques, ask for help, and find other local sewists or those with shared interests. They can create a business page to sell their wares and check out featured content. It's a really cool community, and their social media posts are really making me want to break out the old sewing machine. I'm hoping to be able to work on that part-time, mm-hmm. but it's so hard because my hands hurt so much. So yeah. it's like I'm thinking really hard about like which parts of my body that are busted <laughs> are causing me like the most struggle and like the most decreased quality of life. And mm-hmm. so I've kind of like narrowed it down to three things and that's what I'm going to focus yeah. on help with now because I've been like trying to get kind of everything diagnosed and like spreading myself maybe too thin so like Mm -hmm. you know I'm gonna keep chasing this GI stuff and the chronic fatigue if there's anything to be done about that I don't know and then the hand pain because like the hand pain is the really big thing that restricts my ability to work from home because like I used to work in web development so like I can do a job that I don't have to leave the house to do but my hands are killing me every day. Yeah. It's like I get to the end of the day and I can't cut my food and I can't squeeze my toothpaste. Right. You know, like that's a problem. Yeah, that definitely is a problem. Um, so like it's a matter of like, going back to the rheumatologist again and saying like, okay, we evaluated this stuff, but my hand pain is really bad. Like, can we try and figure out what's going on there? Right. And that's a good strategy to like, you know, when you do have so much stuff going on, just be like, Here's what's going on, but let's focus on this thing. And if you can just try to make things like if you make one thing, you know, 1% better and you make another thing 1% better and you like try and, you know, make things better in tiny increments, that can actually be really helpful. That has worked for me in the past, but right now yeah. I'm in a big garbage dump. So I don't know how I'm going <laughs> to get out of this one. Yeah, um, it's hard. I mean, like, I feel like it's just such a it when you have really like a complex health situation it's this really long term project it is yeah and it it never stops either it's not like like I guess you know there there was part of me that thought like oh okay so I'll just I'll get a diagnosis and then then we can treat the problem yeah and I never just doesn't work that way yeah I never really expected to like get better but I did it I, I think I was expecting that you know, having a diagnosis would point me in a direction where, you know, to some extent, it did do this. It pointed me in a direction and was able to kind of like better hone what I was focusing on and and trying to treat, you know, secondarily. But man, it is an ongoing battle. And it's been a lot like whack-a-mole, you know, just, uh, you know, fixing one problem or maybe like alleviating one problem. And then like when I started getting uh, Botox for, I get Botox for chronic headaches and it's been remarkably successful for the most part, but I still have a headache every day, Uh, but it's a lot better. But, um, you know, once I turned the volume down on the headache yeah. thing was when I realized I had musculoskeletal pain. Like, I, I knew my body hurt, but I didn't know how how much until the head pain wasn't so distracting. Yeah, exactly. It's like you can't even see what the other things are when one thing is just so bad. Yeah. Like, that's all you want to fix. <laughs> yeah, and it just... 
it just overwhelmed my senses. Like, and especially something like head pain, which is so kind of central to your mm-hmm. perception. Um, I don't think I would have gotten diagnosed with EDS if I hadn't started the Botox treatments because I wouldn't have thought to even like focus on my body pain. Yeah. So that was, that was an interesting learning experience where I was like, Oh shit, this is a lot more complicated than I thought it was. Wasn't it? Yeah. I think too, I don't know if you find this, but like, I feel like sometimes the doctors also think we expect to be completely fit. Yes. Oh, my God. I have to say that. I, I say that to new doctors when I see them. I have to be like, listen, all right, I know the deal. Like, this is not getting better anytime soon. You're yeah, probably like, not going to get better at all. Um, I'm not expecting that from you. Let's just try and figure out what it is first, and we'll take yeah, it from there. figure out what it is maybe, like, and, like, a modest goal, like, like a 25% improvement mm-hmm. would make such a difference in my life. Yeah. Like, can we work towards that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, and they're, they're, the way that they're taught is to, you know, focus on finding solutions. But I think, you know, our job as patients may be, at least in, in trying to do our part to train physicians is maybe just remind them that instead of like focusing on solutions, maybe you should focus on, on like your goals and your priorities, um, which, you know, in my case is a quality of life. And that's really different than, you know, most people my age who would say like, I want to get rid of this knee pain. Like yeah. <laughs> getting rid of my knee pain is, is like a hilarious concept. And I, yeah. you know, I'm like, <laughs> whatever. That, right? Yeah, it's no, like, I'm oh, no. like, I'm in, I'm in it for life with the knee pain. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, how can we work together to make the quality of my life better? That's what my priority is. I don't need you to fix me, you know. Definitely. I wish, I so wish that like there was good ways to get that sort of message through to doctors too. Right. Like we never get a chance to talk to them about this stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you only have seven minutes or 15 minutes or whatever the case may be, you know, um, most of the time, you know, you're just not going to get an opportunity to talk about anything more than exactly what, what the task at hand is. Um, which is really unfortunate. And, you know, I don't, I don't have any solutions. Like, obviously, it's not really working anywhere um, under any circumstances. And maybe it is. And if the listeners know of any place that this is actually happening, please let us know. Um, And that doesn't mean that, you know, you you should give up and stop working towards those goals. But it's, it's hard. And it makes it, at least for me as a patient and a patient advocate, I get it's hard for me not to burn out. I spent most of the year, especially I was really, really sick with my GI stuff in the summer. And like, you know, I should, I should write up some complaint letters and I should probably write some more blog posts. And, but at some point it's like, you can only do so much of this. Yeah. You know, you have to put the main energy into actually making it to your appointments. Right. Or even just getting out of bed, like feeding yourself and you know getting yeah. to the bathroom on time like. it's one of the things where I wish I wish that and you know this comes back to this like bigger societal thing but like you see a lot of fundraising and awareness raising that like family members and businesses and stuff do for some illnesses mm-hmm. and you just don't see it for like complex chronic illness oh, of course not oh no well and it's I mean like, we're the people who 
actually would really could really use the help yeah. doing that because yeah absolutely we're not really able to do a lot of advocacy for ourselves and not really like right you know <laughs> what do you call it like groundwork or like you're really attending things and yeah showing up to stuff on yeah. a certain day at a certain time like that's not and it's like if our if our families even understand this like yeah. to help us advocate about it it's yeah, you know, it really rolls into the larger thing about stigma. And, and I, I just don't think that, like, we have the cultural capacity to, like, deal with complexity yeah. in general. So, you know, if you apply that to something that's already pretty heavily stigmatized, it really makes the waters pretty murky for as far as, like, campaigning and, like, getting people to understand things about it. Yeah. <laughs> that pretty much nails it, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah, kind of coming back to the end of it and just how how to go forward living with this, like mm-hmm. the uncertainty about ever getting diagnosis or treatment that really helps. Like I'm really coming back to focusing on like what things can I do that are going to make my day-to-day life better long-term. Yeah. And, you know, some of those things I'm sort of starting to figure out. And, like, others, I'm still (laughs) really just beginning, like, the whole thing about how to get back out in the world again. Yeah. How to socialize. Oh, that's a a big one. Reconnect with my family. Because, like, really the last three years have been a massive strain on my, like, family relationships also. Like, not my spouse, but other ones. Mine too. You know, it's like... I still have a, I feel like I've, I've figured out a lot and, you know, I've been doing this for so long now, but like, there's still a lot to figure out. And I'm also the whole aging thing, like, you know, you want to get ahead of this before you start getting too much older. And then also at a certain point in your life, you know, these are the years we're supposed to be getting our careers on track, like in the capitalist society paradigm. Or having kids, and it's like, I don't feel like there's a lot of support trying to figure out what's realistic with that sort of stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. what kind of life plans are reasonable to try and work towards? Right. Let let alone figuring out, like, what do you actually want? (laughs) I was talking to someone about that recently. A friend of mine who's also been sick and, like, I never even get to thinking about what I want. Like, I've only just begun to sort of think about that again. Because it's always just coping. Yeah. (laughs) Like, taking care of the basic necessities, trying not to let things go downhill that haven't yet. (laughs) You know, there's not a lot of space for, like, do I want kids? What kind of job do I want? Like, do I get to even think about that? Is that just a luxury and a privilege I don't have access to anymore? Yeah, that's a, that is a great way to phrase that question. Um, Because I don't think, you know, these are not things that we are told to expect to have to worry about, you know, and and most people don't ever have to worry about that. Um, I consider myself really lucky because I just never wanted kids. So that... um, kind of makes it a lot easier on me because I'm like, well, 
I mean, that solves that problem, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm lucky that I wasn't, like, really, really wanting to. Yeah. Like, it's definitely been a topic of conversation that keeps coming up. Like, should we, could we, but... Yeah, I mean, when you can barely manage your own needs, it, right. it's... And especially if you don't have, like, a load of family support around you, mm-hmm. like, nearby, it's... Yeah, it's hard to even think of doing something like that. Yeah. I, I, motherhood would probably murder me, I think. I feel the same way. <laughs> it's scary, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, who do you talk to about that? Yeah. You know, my GP's not really going to have that conversation with me. <laughs> no, and nor would they have the time, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, and this brings up a whole other conversation about access to mental health care and whatever, but that's a whole other thing Mm -hmm. um but you know counseling can help you if not figure out that specific question but just kind of get to know yourself better and learn more about what you do want for your life and evaluate you know what kind of things are reasonable like just because we're disabled doesn't mean we can't want things you know or have goals yeah Yeah. I mean I did a ton of counseling (laughs) yeah it's like I think it helped strip away a lot of the, like, crap I was worrying myself and, like, sort of distracting myself with. Yeah. Which helped. Because a lot of that stuff, I'm sure, was probably you comparing yourself to other people. Absolutely. Exactly. You know, this whole, like, learned behavior of trying to keep up with peers, you know, pressure to achieve, right. whether it be like career or academics or things like that. And I, you know, I had to work my way out of that because it's just not yeah. useful. It's no, not it's useful not at me. all. Every once in a while, I'll find myself getting like, but like I'll be on Facebook or whatever. And, you know, like everyone's getting married and having these like really cute babies. And I'm like, ah, uh, you know, I start feeling bad about my life. And then I'm like, I don't even want these things. Why? Why am I feeling these weird pangs of like jealousy and like feel like I'm missing out when like I don't want to have kids. I don't want to get married. And yet here I am comparing myself and my life, which, you know, like has its problems, but I think I'm doing okay. Like, I'm, I'm okay with where I am in my life, you know? Yeah, I mean, you're, like, accepting it, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to. And also, the other thing that we have to constantly remind ourselves of in the age of social media is that you are getting curated versions of people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they are not posting about the fights, the constant fights that they're getting in with their, you know, picture perfect spouse or whatever, you know, people, (laughs) everybody has problems, people have problems. And life is not a a curated Instagram feed all of the time. It's rarely that. It's so rarely that. Um, Although I also was thinking like, you know, I've, I've told myself a lot that like, I don't want kids or like, I don't care about having a career that much like I just want to feel okay and be happy enough and Mm -hmm. I think like some of that is really true and it's part of me accepting the reality of my situation but then like I think sometimes that I also convince myself of that because I know that some of those things aren't And you can totally feel both ways at the same time. Yeah. Like, it's it's okay. Like, people can feel, have more than one feeling or idea about something at the same time. It's not going to, like, tear 
a hole in the space-time continuum. <laughs> um, you know, and I think we're just always kind of conditioned to... Well, I mean, there's just the whole, you know, grow up, get married, have a baby, you know, thing. And then yeah. there's, you know, the social media makes it so much worse just because we are seeing these, you know, meticulously curated versions of maybe 2% of people's lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like, personally, I'm, I'm big on like real <laughs> social media posts. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like not everyone's cup of tea, but um yeah. have to say that as much as some parts of social media suck, <laughs> There's, I, I really do love how it enables people like us to like find each other. Mm-hmm. For sure. Because really, yeah. like the subsets of communities you can find your way into, like I've met all these people who bike, sew or knit or do art and are also disabled or chronically ill. And I'm like, my people, you know, <laughs> and you, people can say what they want about online friendships being like less real but like you know I might not hear from a lot of my real life like physical world friends a lot of the time they might really not understand what's going on with all of this and it's those people who I've met online who are living the same kind of life who are the ones who you know check in or like Mm -hmm. really can sense when things are off with me and I'm really grateful for them yeah yeah, that's that's a really good point too. There's so much wonderful and so much terrible on the internet. It's it's a matter of like navigating and and finding your way to your tribe. Truly. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to stop. Totally. Before we both lose our voices. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm gonna not talk all weekend. <laughs> So thank you for listening to In Sickness and Unhealth. Check out the show notes for links to some of the stuff we talk about in this episode, including a link to Ariane's project, Textilia. Subscribe and stay tuned for everything we have to come. And check out our dysautonomia series from our first week. Let us know what you like about the show so far. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And tell your family, tell your friends, tell your doctors. But most importantly... Don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.